0: The question was ringing through my mind this week, is it really that bad? Those are the thoughts that run through my mind every time I have a home repair in my house. Is it really that bad? I am a, (laughs) oh, Jason. The carpenter here is just shaking his head, yes it is. If you need any home repairs, talk to him later. I am a self-confessed eternal optimist when it comes to home repairs, and yet I have zero skills to fix my home. But no matter what happens, a broken dryer, a malfunctioning water heater, a broken garage door because the spring snaps, my first inclination is to say, is it really that bad? I have trusty Google and YouTube, and I can find almost any video or description on how to fix that thing in my house. And the cost, well, the cost isn't gonna be that much, no. I can fix almost anything under 100 bucks. And then without fail, time and time again in my life, my optimism is blown out of the water. My $150 fix for my garage door, rightly I came to the conclusion I should call someone and it was times 10. The broken water heater, it was $20 to fix. And instead of 30 minutes, it took me 10 hours. And yet I continue to be this optimist about repairs. I never learn. And my poor wife, oh, every time something breaks, she has to endure me saying, it's not that bad. I looked it up on Google. YouTube give me a video. I can fix it relatively no time, little cost and she's amazing and enduring with me through that are you an optimist what are you optimistic about maybe it's your sports team your kids behavior your eventual tax bill at the end of the year what are you optimistic about in life do you ever say about a certain subject it's really not that bad what about yourself does that conversation ever come to yourself Am I really that bad? When I, do, I do some good things in life. I, I help older people when I can. I, 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 I help carry things. I help people move. I, I, I give when people have needs. I, I don't steal. I'm, I'm honest in work. I, I try to live at peace with everyone that, I'm, that lives around me. Am I really that bad? Can't we just do our best... And doing good here and there, why isn't that good enough for life? You know, as we continue in our series in the book of Romans, chapter 3, Paul has been making this argument for the Jews to take stock of their comfortable life and relationship with God. That the impulse, to say, I'm really not that bad, was seemingly on the tongues of every Jew as as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. And he's, he's imploring them, he's asking them to look honestly at themselves and come to the conclusion that God has made about them, that they need Jesus Christ just like the rest of the world. They need to bow their knee in repentance and in faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus but they're not fully convinced. So Paul sets the final stage in this chapter and he leads them into the courtroom of God. So here's the main idea. In the courtroom of God, everyone is found unrighteous. In the courtroom of God, everyone is found unrighteous. It's not just the Jews who are guilty, as we will find out, it's everyone. We're all guilty. We stand before God by ourselves And and in that, we are unrighteous. And Paul will walk us through three stages of the courtroom scene this morning. The indictment, the evidence, and the verdict. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 1 through verse 20 this morning. Our our focus will be on the second half of that, 9 through 20. And you'll be helped, again, to have a Bible open as we walk through this. Romans chapter 3 Starting in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, as we launch into this courtroom scene, the first point we have is the indictment. And I need you to enter into this courtroom. If you've ever been to a courtroom, kind of picture in your mind that there's seats for the audience, but there's no audience. There's a prosecutor, and they will read the charges as we will see. And there's a defendant, but no lawyer to represent him. There is a bench and there's a judge that sits there. He's a great judge. Actually, he's a perfect judge. There's, been, there's never been a judge quite like this judge. He not only knows all of the truth, he knows the defendant. In fact, he was there when every defendant was born. Not only that, he's been there for every moment since birth, and he knows the defendant inside and out. And so the prosecutor speaks up, he's gonna speak the word of the indictment and and who is guilty. Again, verse nine, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, everyone, Paul says, are under sin. And then here is the indictment, as is written, none is righteous, no, not one. The Bible is very clear for us, There there is no one righteous, not even one person on earth. Every single person stands before the judge stripped of all pretensions of their alleged righteousness. This very well-known passage informs us of the biblical teaching of total depravity. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that it's utter depravity. Utter depravity would mean that every single human being is as wicked as possibly be, and we can rightly say that this is not the case. As much as people sin, They can always contemplate to sin more. Total depravity means that sin has affected all of our life, every aspect, and we will see that in verses 11 through 18. Sin affects all of us, our our minds and our wills and our bodies, every dimension of our personality. And Paul rightly says that we're all under sin, that no one is righteous. To, to use the phrase to be under something, we, we say that all the time in some ways in, in passing in our life. We, we probably say it more frequently than you realize. When, when you get behind your work or your school projects, we say that we're behind or we're under a heavy load. And so, we've in that instance, we've lost the sense of being on top of things, right? I don't know if… You are like me. I like to be on top of things. I don't want to be under things and behind. And now we're underneath it. And in, in this case, to be under sin means to be under a load, crushed down by a, a terrible burden that we can't get out from underneath. And so we're all under sin, under sin legally and realistically. And so Paul's original thesis in Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now it's been proven. Paul has eliminated at this point all the loopholes for any human to escape. God's wrath has been shown against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it targets every single one of us. We are unrighteous. We are under sin. So, that's the indictment. Second, we go into the evidence. None is righteous, no not one. There's no avoidance. There's no human that could ever be called righteous outside of Jesus Christ, and that's the charge that Scripture makes towards every single person. And So, Paul is going to now move into the evidence for the charge. What makes this true? Verse 11 through verse 18, "'No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive.' the venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We need to understand that God has been saying these things for centuries at this point, Paul is not making a new argument at all. He is restating the same argument that kings and prophets have been speaking to God's people for hundreds of years. And Paul quotes from the Old Testament, and and for a devout Jew who had sung the Psalms of David in the synagogue all their life, crying out to God to punish the wicked, it would have shocked them to discover that these truths in the Psalms actually applied to them as well. And this series of quotations is what the rabbis would call a pearl-stringing midrash. As commentator Grant Osborne has said, a pearl-stringing midrash is a sermon that strings together a series of pearls from Scripture on a single topic. And as a faithful lawyer, Paul brings up the charges that have been given to him from the judge himself, God. And Paul here strings together multiple Old Testament passages to form his argument to the defendant that they are indeed guilty. And he begins in verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. No one understands. What, is, what does that mean? There is no one who really understands what righteousness involves outside of God giving them that understanding. Our lack of righteousness affects and uh, uh, our comprehension of who He is. We don't fully understand God. On our own, we, we are turned in on ourselves. And to break this point, Paul is quoting from Psalm 14. Just so you know, in your Bible, if you're not used to this, you should have little letters there marking throughout. Those are references to footnotes. If your Bible doesn't have that, get a new Bible, Because that's super helpful to your Bible reading. Uh, I didn't go to any commentary this week. I literally went to my Bible and pulled out all the passages that someone else did the work for to find all these these passages, okay? So if I'm going too quick through the Old Testament passages, go, go back to your Bible and read those footnotes because that'll fill in. It's amazing. The Bible is a commentary for itself. And the first is Psalm 14. Verses 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul, Psalm 14, at the beginning here, is not talking about uh, not believing in God atheism here. Instead, it's a life that ignores God to desire to live a life without Him. And those outside of Jesus Christ have a failure to understand God and a failure to actually seek Him. This isn't just passive ignorance either, but a blatant, active rejection of God and who He is. He says, this almost says, the fool wants nothing to do with God because they're so enamored with the things of the world that they don't desire to seek after God for who He truly is. Now, Paul isn't saying that no one seeks for spiritual blessings or seeking God to answer their questions or to have some peace or even to have spiritual experiences. That's not what he's saying, and and I can say that confidently because people still do that. And why do people do that? Why do people search out these things? because man, left to himself, seeks only the benefits of God while rejecting the person of God. People might have an intellectual interest in God or a philosophical curiosity about God. They don't desire to meet the person of God out of love and desire to understand who He is. Total depravity means? that people want nothing to do with God, and in fact, whenever they choose between God and their selfish desires, they always choose against God. They always choose themselves. So, Paul says there's no one who does good, not even one. Now, Paul, are you saying to us, are you telling us that in this world, there's no one that does a good thing? I mean, I saw this last week, a billionaire gave away millions this last year to good things. It seems like it's a good thing to give money to those that are poor that can't heat their home and and feed their family. Is that not good? What Paul is saying here, that no one who is outside of Christ can ever do good the way that God defines good, the perfect standard that God has set forth as what is good. And why is that? Because even the the supposed sincere good intentions and helpful desires to even seek to worship God or to help others is tainted. It's ultimately to serve ourselves. Charles Spurgeon often told a story which really gets to the heart of this issue. He said, once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. He decided to give this carrot to his prince because he loved his sovereign, and when he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, "'Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce even a greater crop. It's yours.' And the gardener went home rejoicing. Well, a nobleman heard of this incident and thought, if that's what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot what would he give me if I gave him a fine horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift, but the prince discerned his heart and said, you expect me to give you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Sin corrupts even our very best deeds to do good. If you have convinced yourself that you are going to be saved through your good deeds, it's really yourself that you're serving. Remember, Paul is speaking to a Jewish audience here, people who have convinced themselves that they are the very best, that they are God's chosen people, and because God selected them, they could live any way they please, and they would get into the kingdom of God eventually. But all of our good works are tainted, because essentially, in and of ourselves, all of our good works are all about us. Somehow we would get the recognition, the love, and the praise. Paul continues, no one understands, no one seeks for God, verse 12 all have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Here Paul is quoting from Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, every one to his own way. See, Paul has quoted Psalm 14 and Isaiah 53, and that we, we flee from God. We need to recognize and remember that God is the one that seeks after us, as we saw in Genesis 3, So If we're fleeing from God and His presence in our lives, we turn aside. We go off the path to God. No one follows the straight and narrow path that leads to God. Instead, we're we're swerving side to side, seeking to to run away from God, and there's a, a willfulness with our wandering away from God. He says, Paul says, we've come worthless or corrupt, as the psalmist says. They simply have no room for God in their lives and will not give Him room And the result is, again, they will do no good, no matter how hard they try. And then Paul continues with evidence that speaks to our speech. Look at verse 13, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. He's quoting Psalm 5-9 which says, for there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. Describing our throat as an open grave, just pause for a moment and think through that. It's a graphic and appropriate metaphor which depicts every word that comes out of a person as an unclean thing that pours out of a rotting corpse. Do we leave graves open? It would be disturbing. We cover up graves out of respect for those that have passed, and also we don't want to display or see or smell the decay and corruption of the body. And Paul is saying here, those that are unregenerate, those who are rejecting God, open their mouth and testify to the spiritual death that's inside of them. That's how they speak. And and not only that, Paul says they use their tongues to deceive. Psalm 140, verse 3, they make their tongues sharp as a serpent's. Well, that's interesting. Why Why would the psalmist, why would Paul compare our speech to a serpent? Any clues? Genesis 3, right? Who is it describing? So, when we speak this way, when the unbelieving world speaks this way, they're more like Satan than anyone else. And the deadly effects of this speech from a tongue that's unregenerate is slander and gossip and lying, which is essentially an attempt to destroy another human who is made in the image of God. This is speaking of unbelieving world, but this is still prevalent in the church. When you slander or gossip about someone, you are acting more like Satan than God. That goes for all of us. You are literally doing the work of Satan, because what is he known for? Deceit, lies, slander. Then Psalm 10.7 says, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under His tongue is mischief and iniquity. See, the mouths of those, the tongues of those who are unregenerate speak this way. for whatever reason, during the week, recalling as I was thinking through this with other staff members, my unregenerate state as a teen and how my mouth was uncontrolled and the cursing that would come out of it around sports in front of my dad, ashamed of this, but quite natural for those who have not the Spirit living inside of them, right? I'm going to guess 60, 70 percent of you will leave this room and go into a world filled with this language. I pray for you, friends, of hearing that day in and day out. You know what I'm talking about here. Hearts that do not enjoy the kindness of God, they lead to words that deceive and poison and curse and spread bitterness and gossip and cussing. And a a tongue, a bitter tongue, is evidence of a self-seeking heart. And, And not only do our... Our hearts affect our tongues and our our mouths and our unregenerate state. Paul says it affects our actions and what we do. He says in verse 15, Romans 3, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. See, another mark of a fallen, sinful man is that they're quick to engage in violence and bloodshed. And man's depravity is seen in the rush to violence. Will Durant wrote in his book, Lessons from History, he said, in the last 3,421 years, 3,421, last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have never seen war. That's astonishing. Isaiah 59, 7 and 8, their feet run to evil, and they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Sin leads to misery and death. It does not lead to peace. Peace. It isn't that they have not followed the path of peace, but they don't understand or even understand the full scope of what it means to follow in the pathway of peace. And ultimately, when it's all said and done, they don't want peace. Sinful man left to himself has the desire to destroy others, not to establish peaceful relations. That's why it's so important for us as a church, corporately very thankful for for Jeff praying and leading us this morning to pray for peace because this is a supernatural work that has to come into this world because people naturally don't seek this. In fact, it it affects not only the world, it affects our own communities. Sometimes it affects our very church with a, a religious unbeliever in the church, causing pain and turmoil. There are people in the church, and I mean that generally, that give the impression that they're with God and God's people, but they have this insatiable desire to bring up evil and pain and destruction. And their lack of peace shows themselves to be against God and against His people. Paul ends in verse 18 with the driving force behind all of this evil. He says, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what's driving all of this. Psalm 36.1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. How does a person look at things who has no fear of God? Sometimes we think of this phrase of fearing God as that we're somehow afraid of Him. And yes, in some ways that's true, but there's also another way to view this word and how I believe Paul is using it here. To fear God means to take Him into account in how you live, to live your life in light of Him. And those who are not Christian live as if there is no God. They live as if they never will stand before God. It's crazy to think the amount of people in our world who completely ignore or even deny the possibility of eternity, and yet they spend so much time planning for the retirement. Planning for the future. I mean, that is a regular commercial on TV, right? To just plan for your future. You don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not downing retirement. Don't, Don't get that. But they stop short. We should plan for retirement. But what's after retirement? Have you thought about that lately? Have you planned for eternity? Plan for retirement, friends. Make the plans. Be wise in how God has gifted you and and given to you. Use that, please, for the betterment of, of you and your kids. Do that as best as you can but if you stop short there, friends, you'll be in for a rude awakening on that day when you no longer live. And this is the plight of humanity. You never freely bow down to the living God, giving Him control of our lives and our future, enjoying Him for what He really is and experiencing His blessings in relationship with Him and asking Him to shape us so that we can serve Him. We, see, we naturally and sinfully don't want to do that. We're convinced, the world's convinced they don't need God. All they need is themselves. And This means because of, of this convinced depravity that there has to be a change that has to happen inside of us for us to want to be near a holy God. John says in 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, it's through the work of God, drawing people to Himself that salvation happens. See, we decide to put our faith in Him only because He's decided to give us faith to believe in Him. And this terrible list of evidence here is what every person on earth faces. There will not be a person who is exempt from the judgment of God falling on them. And what will the verdict be? Number three, the verdict. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law reveals how sinful we really are and how far short we fall from God's righteousness. See, this is the final part of the courtroom scene that he's been leading up here in the last 10 verses. You need to understand that Christians regularly admit that God is right to be angry at our sin. Christians admit their sin. They turn from their sin. They seek to live lives free of sin with the help of the Spirit of God. Christians are not forever crushed because God shows them their sin, because Christians know Christ who saved them from their sin. But non-Christians, they don't do this naturally. In fact, they run to their own defense regularly. Non-Christians fight over whether it's sin at all. Non-Christians have learned to lawyer up real quick. They're quick to give a defense and what they are supposedly have done. Non-Christians seek to escape any penalty of their sins, any conviction on themselves, to place the blame on everyone else except themselves. And Paul's biggest challenge here is to silence the protesting mouths of respectable people who know their Bibles really well, but who cannot accept that God is right to be angry at them. And he's doing this out of love to show them themselves. Do you have a hard time admitting that you're wrong, that you sin, that you're on the wrong side? Are you ready to stand up to God and tell Him that you're not that bad? You need to understand something, that God never offers false charges against people. Everything that He has said about us is true, and we know it deep down inside. Paul says that when this final verdict comes down, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to god everyone will shut up they'll stop talking they will stop defending themselves the literal translation is they will put their hand over their mouth and utter disbelief because they'll have nothing left to say there will be no quip or flippant remark they will be silent the evidence has been presented The very best lawyer on earth can give no ending statement. The evidence is convincing, and the defendant is silent. To be silent is to know our guilt. And he says, no human beings will be justified and declared righteous by the works of the law. That means all of our work to obey the law won't justify us. It won't result in us being made right with God. See, Bible knowledge is a wonderful thing, friends, but that alone cannot change your heart. All it does is make us conscious of our sins. It shows us the rottenness of our hearts, but it cannot make our hearts clean. See, the purpose of the law was to show us how guilty we really are. It's through God's work that makes us new. It's actually impossible to hear the gospel and believe the gospel until you hear the gavel crash down and hear that the verdict is guilty. You will not believe in who Jesus is and what he has done until you understand that you're guilty. Until we understand the justice of God, we will never understand and appreciate and love the mercy and grace of God. And that was the central purpose of the law, to make people fully conscious of their own sin. It was never meant to save a person, but to drive them to understand their sin and the consequences of their sin so that they would run to a Savior for what He has done. So, they run to Jesus Christ. And what has Christ done for us? Christ came to earth and lived a complete, obedient life to the Father. He was the only one that could obey the law perfectly, and the world hated Him for it. And they nailed Him to a cross. And on the cross, Jesus suffered for our sins. On the cross, if you remember, Jesus cries out to God the Father, and He hears no response. Why? Where had the Father gone? He couldn't look at Jesus. He couldn't bear to see our sins upon Him. And willingly, Jesus goes under the curse for our sins, for my sins. For our gossip, our lying, our deceit, our laziness, our cheating, our stealing, our lust, our idolatry, our defiance, our attempt at good works. Jesus took all of our good works, all of our sins upon Himself on the cross, and the only way that you will understand the cross, friends, if you understand that you're guilty, then your mouth will be stopped shut with your hand over it, and then you will want nothing more than Jesus Christ, because He died for you. He died for me. This is the gospel message, that God is holy and just, and man is not. Man is sinful. Man seeks to to get his own and have his own way, but Christ came to die for us in our place, and now you need to respond. And that response is not just for unbelievers. That response is as much for believers here today, reaffirming your love and your faith in Christ because He's the only way But if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you need to understand that Christ died for your sins. Today is the day of salvation for you, friends, to turn from your good works, from your good deeds, to trying to earn God's love and trust in Christ alone, and believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and to trust Him in life. And as we will see, Lord willing, next week, you'll be justified, you'll be redeemed, made right with Him. Verse 21, it's always hard to scoot into this next passage, but it's really good. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, the the gospel tells us of a righteousness from God that is received and not earned. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, here this morning, where are you blind to your own sins? Sometimes in the Christian life, we fall away from a regular pattern of confessing our sins. And then sometimes we begin to doubt our salvation. We begin to doubt that God really loves us. But Christian, if you understand the gospel and and you see Jesus as beautiful to you and what He's done on the cross, the issue might simply be that you need to regularly confess your sins to Him. Christian, confessing sin is like taking the garbage out. It must be done regularly. So what sins are you harboring this morning? Spend some time confessing your sins this morning to God. And I would dare say, Christian, member of this church, invite others into that. It might be the most healthy thing you've done in a long time to be friends with another believer and help each other walk more faithfully and closely with Jesus through the confessing of sins. And then Christian recognized that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. One final passage, Christian, I want to encourage you with is Hebrews 10. Just listen here. Hebrews 10, 17 through 25. He says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He'd opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering for He who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near." The life of a Christian is meant to remember the gospel and to do that with other Christians. And the hope in verse 17, He will not remember our sins. Does God forget anything? So what does it mean here? It means He will not hold us accountable for sins any longer. We're made righteous. And when he says where there's forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering sin, it means when when Christ has come alive in our hearts, when He has saved us, there's no need for any other sacrifice. Jesus is saying, I forgave you. You cannot make any other sacrifices. The shop is closed. The deed is done. God accepted Christ's sacrifice. So there's no more sacrifices that we need to do to be acceptable in His sight your righteousness, your good deeds, your attendance on Sunday morning will not add to your salvation, friends. It is paid for. It is finished. You cannot do anything to add to your salvation. Your sin had to be punished, and it was punished in Jesus Christ. He says, I have killed your sin in my son, and so when I look at you, Christian… I see Jesus Christ. He sees perfection, spotlessness, radiant beauty because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so, Christian, when you go to bed tonight and you lie awake and the accusations come to your mind, into your head, knowing that you've failed, that you've sinned during the day that shouldn't crush you. It shouldn't crush you because you run to the cross, and you remember that Christ died for your sins, and that Christ is continuing to sanctify you to make you look more like Him. See, our hope and our life Our future is found in Christ alone. We're gonna sing in a moment, in Christ alone. And I want you to meditate on those words. At the same time, I want you to sing out. Christians sing, if you know that. Men, singing is not just for women, sing out. A life redeemed, made new because of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you can't carry a tune. We sing out in what Christ has done in His goodness to us, and we sing of His faithfulness, His love, His patience, His endurance, and we'll continue singing until He calls us home, or we'll stand in the power of Christ when He comes back. His bride. Would you stand with me as I pray? Father, we acknowledge this morning that You are a good God. It is right for us to, to speak highly of You, God, publicly, to talk about Your Word, To sing praises to you. And as we see ourselves in the courtroom of God, we know that we're guilty, that we stand condemned in ourselves, but Christ came to take our sins and to be crucified on the cross to redeem us, to justify us. And Father, I pray for those this morning who've never placed their faith in you and your Son. May you save them this morning, and may they join the saints singing of your goodness. And that you would go with us this week. You would help us and strengthen us and give us hope and strength to love you and to serve you and to share this glorious good news of what you've done for us with those that we come in contact with, for your honor and for your glory. For we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.